0: let me start by saying I don't see this as a a football film per se or a football hooligan film there's an element of it in there but within that I have done a couple of films like that. So I didn't want to do another film where you've got the A team against the B team and they have a fight and then probably have another fight and then whichever one we're supposed to like walks off into the sunset without a missing tooth or a scratch and he's the hero. I didn't want to do that. If we were going to do this and go down a well-trodden path, it had to be an element of something new. So that element for me and I'm sure us was wham, bam, thank you and then goes home and then has to go and, you know, he has to go and hide the blood on him or he's limping, he has to hide that or the guilt when he puts his son to bed and thinks, you know, am I being, a, am I being an idiot, you know, risking myself and risking your livelihood and all that, that was the drama and that's, that's really what appealed, appealed for me. Yeah.
1: The voice you just heard was that of award winning actor Leo Gregory speaking about the 2014 film Top Dog. Starring himself, directed by Martin Kemp, screenplay was penned by Dougie Brimson, who was also the author of the 2013 novel of the same name. Dougie Brimson is also joining us today to talk all things Top Dog. Welcome to the Adapted to Screen podcast. I am Richie. I am Philip. In this podcast, we take a book and its on-screen counterpart. We take it apart, we talk about it, we dissect it, we have a bit of banter in the process. And today we have the book and the film Top Dog to talk about. Top Dog was written, both the film and the book were written by Dougie Brimson. And to join us today to talk about all things Top Dog, we have The Man. Himself, Dougie Brimson. Hello, Dougie. How are you? It's good to have you with us. I'm very well, thank you. This one's been a, a long time in the making. You are a very busy person, from what we can tell. Uh, yeah,
2: life is uh, a bit crazy lately. Not not book wise, um, just film stuff. Really, it's exciting though.
1: Exciting times since. Like Green Street and uh, Top Dog, has film become your main thing now?
2: Yeah, I mean the publishing world became a bit a bit problematic. It was uh, it was moving in a specific direction, and that direction wasn't didn't really involve you know, literature for working class blokes. Um, and there seems to be less and less of it these days. And it became more and more difficult to convince people to keep you know, doing the stuff, the kind of stuff that I wanted to do. And as more and more uh, interesting film work came along, I I took the decision to do more scripts, to work on more scripts. And then uh, then the pandemic hit, and I I, I wrote a couple more scripts during the first chunk of the pandemic. And then I thought, why not just try and get some of these away? And um, so I set up my own film company, and literally within a day, I had to buy it on a script and uh, and we were off and running and we haven't really slowed down since.
3: Well, that's extremely fortuitous uh, for you, Dougie. Um, obviously, you've done around about 15 books in total and I think your filmography stands at around about, was it, uh, is it four features?
2: No, there's, there's three features and three shorts. That's correct.
3: Sorry, eight, yeah, six in total. I yeah. apologise, uh, of course. And obviously, uh, by the sounds of it, a lot more to come.
2: Uh, I hope so. I, I've got... Three or four features in development at the moment, just waiting for... We had a yes on one today, actually. Oh, congratulations. So oh, uh, thank you. So we're we're going to be doing that, and then I'm waiting for another yes on
3: a, another one. And obviously, if there's any characters or any parts for like a couple of uh, dummy brummies, <laughs> then obviously me and uh, me and Richard can fill those spots for you, no problem.
2: Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll put you top of my list. <laughs> thank you very much. With the strike, it might be quite handy. Actually,
3: <laughs> very true. Yes, um, yeah. Have car, will travel. Uh, Dougie, actually, um, something I didn't know until I was doing my research is that uh, and. Not just quickly. I'll just mention this. You wrote We Still Kill the Old Way back in 2000. Well, a 2014 uh, release for that movie. I saw that a few years ago. Absolutely loved that. I thought it was brilliant. I thought you had some great characters, some fantastic actors as well, particularly the young lad who was the menacing chap. Because I think that was one of his first roles as well, and I thought he was so good in that.
2: Yeah, he's Danny Hatcher, uh, Hatchard. He's a he's a brilliant actor. Um, he went into EastEnders shortly after that for a while. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a great young actor. Um, he's got a big future. I don't know why we don't see more of him. Actually, you've just reminded Actually, I'll put him on my list. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> underneath me and Richie, though, Dougie. Yeah, underneath. Yeah, me and well, obviously. Yeah. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dougie, um, uh, just before we move on to the uh, standard format, I thought we'd play a little game. It's called the Yes No Game. I'm going to read out some actors' names and all you've got to say is yes or no if they have spoken words on screen, which you have written. Are you all right with that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So um, first on the list, uh, Charlie Hunnan. Yes. Elijah Wood. Yes. Claire Fulani. Yes. Ian Ogilvie. Yes. Star of A View to a Kill and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Alison Doody. Yes. Star of Highlander and Braveheart, James Cosmo. Yes. Stephen Burkoff. Yes. Joan Collins. Yes. Brad Pitt. No. We can't have it all, can we, Dougie? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, exclusive. <laughs> um this is the uh, this is a part of the podcast where I normally do the Author's bonf, where I uh, where I just do a little overview of the author of the book that we're covering. I think it'd probably be a little bit disrespectful to do it while you're sitting there, doggie So if you could reduce your life's work into about thirty seconds for our audience, that would be fantastic.
2: Okay, I uh, did, served eighteen years in the Royal Air Force, left in nineteen ninety four. Got uh, some work as an extra on film and TV. Uh, my younger brother and i had an idea for a book a non-fiction book about football in the build-up to euro 96 uh we wrote that it got published it was a big success we did loads more i moved into fiction um did a a book called the crew uh, and then i got involved in green street and uh carried on doing films and books ever since
3: that is absolutely fantastic thank you very much for that dougie just for the listeners um dougie mentioned his brother there his brother is eddie brimpson who was a previous guest on our podcast um which you can check out in the archives which was running with the firm versus the movie id
1: just out of interest did you like that film
2: uh which one running with the firm
1: yeah or id id I, well
3: both I suppose
2: there was two weren't there
3: oh yeah well no we're not talking about ID2 we're just talking about uh, the one with uh, Reese Dinsdale no I didn't like it <laughs> oh really
2: no I know people rave about it and, I, and I'm and i very aware that the, the, you know, Green Tree is uh, a contentious movie in certain circles uh, but I didn't like ID I just thought it was kind of all contrived not all that gumbo nonsense uh, just like
3: oh well yeah I say I mean yeah I mean the fact that that was I mean that's one of the things that obviously we'll talk to you about, about the differences between uh, the movie and why things are put into movies that aren't in the book and so on and so forth yeah uh, but we're going to do the uh, we're going to do the synopsis I can't say that word I don't, I don't even know why I tried we're going to do uh, the the synopsis for Top Dog but i want to do it in my little cinema voice yeah disclaimer
1: uh, Dougie it's going to sound absolutely fucking awful when he does it now but once I've done all the once I've done all the editing over it and put the music behind and everything it's going to sound brilliant
2: okay cool <laughs>
3: London bad boy Billy Evans gets in over his head when he joins
0: a dangerous criminal gang.
3: That's what's on IMDb and I always go with what's on IMDb because then we have to do the cast and the cast is right there. So I'm very clever indeed, yes. So for the cast of Top Dog, we have Leo Gregory playing Billy Evans, Ricky Hartnett playing Mickey, Tom Davis playing Cod, Jason Fleming playing Dan and Vincent Regan playing Watson. Along with Johnny Palomero as PJ Lorraine Stanley, As Julie, most people have recognised her from her many years on EastEnders. And Tom Coulson as barman Tom. Nice. Yes, excellent. So now we're going to move in, Well, we're going to move into the differences. But it's it's a little bit different this week because we have the author of both the film and the movie on now, uh, Dougie. Just from my research, is Top Dog a Billy Evans
2: trilogy, or would you class it as a Billy Evans trilogy? No, Top Dog is the second book in a trilogy. Although although it's you know you can you can read uh, the crew, Top Dog, and In the Know, which is the final book. Uh, um, um, ah, okay. Yeah, you can read them all as standalones, but there, there's references in certainly in Top Dog and the Crew, uh, in it and in the Now. There are references to the previous books.
3: Okay, okay.
2: Obviously, better if you read all three, but not least because of the development of the, the Billy Evans character.
3: Okay. Now, again, this is just my research. Is there a 19-year gap between Top Dog and In the Know? Yes. Is that a gap that you kept within the book, or is it kind of like six months later from?
2: Well, I don't think. I don't think it's 19 years. Nine years, maybe. Uh, no,
3: oh, oh, okay, maybe I've written it down incorrectly. I do apologise. I had it down as um, 2001 for Top Dog and 2020 for In the Know, but that's that's when I use things like Wikipedia. You see, Doggy. No, t- yeah,
2: 2001, I think was the. Yeah, it might be. Jesus Christ.
3: (laughs) Sorry, I haven't made you feel old now. (laughs) Well,
2: you have because, I mean, in in two years' time, it's 20 years since Green Street came out.
3: No, that is very true. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good.
2: So, um, no, the reason there was a long gap was because I was never going to do it. It was purely because um, I was getting a lot of people ask me, you know, what happened to Billy Evans and et cetera, et cetera. And I had this idea for a story that um, I was going to do about something as a stand alone book. More and more people were asking me, you know, is there a third book? Is there a third book? So I wrapped, wrapped that story really into, into Billy Evans' character and it became the third book in the trilogy. But really it was only going to be um, the, the two books initially.
3: Okay, that's very interesting. Um, the book, Top Dog, it's about 300 pages. So it's, it's a standard kind of size book. I think if you're, like, if you're reading a Jack Reacher book, as an example, it's around about 330 pages. So we're, we're at proper book thickness here with Top Dog.
1: Is that the correct technical term? Is
3: it Phil? Book, Proper th- book, book thickness. thickness. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Spine, spineage. Can you call it spine? Can you call it spineage? <laughs> <laughs> What's
1: the spineage on your
3: book? <laughs> about about half a hand. Um, Dougie, if you were to film a three hundred page book as it is, as it was, what kind of film time do you think that would be?
2: Uh, it's funny you should say that because. Um, and I, I know we're, we're going to cross over now because there's a lot of crossover and it's going to be in this discussion. Of course. When I got approached to, um, adapt it, adapt the book, I crammed everything in the book into the script. And, um, then Martin Kemp came on board as a director and, uh, he called me. I got a phone call from him one night. And he said, yeah, I've got the script. I've just gone through it. Can you come over and, and we'll go through it? And I said, yeah, great. When he said, we'll come over now. So, uh, and he lived not far from me. So I went over to his, um, palatial manor, uh, which is what it is. And, um, and he proceeded to tear the script I'd written apart, literally redlined every, pretty much every page. Did you beat him up at this point, doggy? No, nah, because I was, I was just absolutely gutted. Um, <laughs> You know, because I put so much work into the script and making sure that all these, because there's three distinctive threads in the book. Mm -hmm. If you've read it, you'll know or listen to it.
3: Yes. Yeah.
2: And I'd wrapped all of those into the, into the script, which for a movie is really uh, an hour and a half. You know, it's 102 pages and it's a page a minute. And when it finished and I was literally, you know, devastated in a pool of depression on his office floor, he said, this script is brilliant. And I said, "You just <laughs> walked apart for three hours. Like what the freaking hell?" And he said, "No, everything I've done is designed to make this script better." He said, "Because you've got three storylines in here, and you can only put one in. There's only room in a movie for for one, you know, one story. Mm-hmm. So you've got to pick the best one. I've picked the best one." He said, "Go away and have a read, do a rewrite on it, and then uh, I'll have another read, and we'll come back." So I went away and sulked for about ten days. <laughs> and um, and then, when I started working on it, I realized he was absolutely right about everything he said. It taught me an awful lot. He's really i mean martin Kemp everyone thinks of him as a Spandau ballet man. You no, know, an East Enders barman he's a very very talented director doesn't do enough directing
1: good on Gogglebox as well <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's just a good guy he's just a really really nice guy he's good at everything he does well it's actually
3: quite funny that Richie should say you should lean on Gogglebox where I think, I think I'm think i more familiar obviously with Spandau Ballet but uh, obviously The Craze one of my more favourite films Waxwork 2 Lost in Time which he did and uh, I think he did uh, he did another film I can't it's something to do with the yachts uh, which I really enjoyed as well. I think that's when he was, uh, he and Gary were going across America and doing some stuff. Obviously, Gary Kemp ended up in uh, Bodyguard. But um, I was interested, uh, Doug, and now that you brought it up, well, first of all, how did Martin Kemp end up as the director of the movie? And do you have any, well, okay, let's go back. How were you approached to adapt the book into the movie, first of all?
2: Um, I was approached. Uh, in fact I was I was talking to Leo Leo and I had been wanting to do Another something else For a while and we talked about a few things And I, he had been approached by a producer who, uh, who wanted to work with him And Leo dragged me along To the meeting but he didn't really want to meet me anyway You know he just wanted to meet Leo He'd never met him before And so we pitched uh, at the meeting We pitched the idea to him And he, he just bit our hands off really And said you know Let, well, let's do it and it was, it was quite quick. He brought Martin in. I, I thought, I mean, he knew this guy, the producer, he knew Martin. They were, they were mates. And it was, it was a, from when I heard about it, when it was, his name was mooted to me, and we'd met a few, we'd met a few potential directors, when his name was suggested, my first thought was, A, a can he do it? And I was assured he could. But also the fact where, well, first we're going to get a banging soundtrack, but we're also going to get... um really really good publicity well oh, yeah 100% and and you know it's all about publicity and, and then we met you know meeting him and talking to him we had a long conversation on the phone I think he was in the south of France or somewhere and he told us his vision for the movie and it was it was a no brainer from then on. It was yeah, let's do it. Well,
3: normally if I meet clients, I have like lunch in like Guildford or like Somerset but you obviously just pop to the south of France for a for a quick <laughs> for a quick business meeting. Well,
2: I wish I was in a ropey office in Soho, and he was in the south of France. <laughs> and uh, speaking to us over a speaker. But yeah, no, it was uh, he's a he's a good guy. You did a good job. So when you've
3: had the conversation, so you've had the conversation now, it's like, right, let's turn Top Dog into a movie. And then they say, right, Dougie, uh, would you like to write the script or would well, we've got someone who wants to write the script or do you go, yes, but only if I write the script, how does, how
2: does that negotiation no, work? There was no way I wasn't going to write the script. I was so, so familiar with the story. I wanted to do another movie. I wanted to get another movie out, um, to prove I could still do it. And, uh, there was no way I wasn't going to do it. I didn't even consider the idea of anybody else. And, uh, and, and to be fair, uh, you know, and it's, it's improving time and time again, from the writer of Green Street has some clout. Oh, 100%. Of course he does. So whatever whatever you think of Green Street. And as I said, I'm well aware that some people think it's absolutely crap. But, um, I, I, you know, I just said, right, I'll do it. How much are you going to pay me? How's it going to work? <laughs> and let's go. And that was it.
3: Definitely. So when you were talking to uh, Martin regarding the actual script, what kind of, I think you might've mentioned it just when you, uh, earlier on, how many pages had you written? And Had you written it in book form or had no, you? No, it was a book first. No, sorry. What I mean is when you were writing the script, were you taking all of the, like, did you just go, right, this is the book and now I'm going to turn it into the script? Or were you adding little bit yourself to?
2: No, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was a straight adaptation. I thought the, okay. the story in the book's, really strong the story mm. arc's really strong um i knew the ending i always write the ending first always oh, that's interesting um, so uh, i knew how it ended i knew what, a, what billy's story arc was going to be i was so familiar with the story after the, doing the crew as well i was so familiar with the character that uh it was a no-brainer really it was um everything i wanted to say was in there
1: you know which do you prefer out of the two? Do you prefer writing um, novels or do you prefer screenwriting?
2: Uh, screenwriting. Um, novels are... There's, there's a, they're completely different beasts. With, with, a, with a, a novel, you're in control of everything. Um you've even got some input into the you know the cover what goes on the cover you, and yeah you've got it's you've got an editor to work with but in terms of the content you're quite autocratic for want of a better word but with a screenplay uh you might as uh, you know, i might as well rhyme in pencil because every word is open to discussion or change and i'm not precious about scripts at all not even not even with top dog you know, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what the story was. I knew the story was strong enough for me to be able to carry it through. There was no way anyone was going to be able to improve on the, the basic core story of, of Billy's development. But you, as soon as Martin, as I said before, as soon as Martin came on board, it's his movie. It's not my movie anymore. And so I, my job as a, as a screenwriter is to work with the director and give him what he wants to see on screen. Okay. Um, and that that's the process and it's one it's interesting you know it's an interesting question because for a lot of writers who try and adapt their own stuff they struggle with that because they've got no control of, of what happens And with a script it isn't just a director you know a producer can have an import you can investors can have an import it depends how you know how strong you are to stand up for, for things. I mean there's going to be things in a script in any script which as a writer you can say no that's got to stay. That's got, you know, that's got to stay because it's core to this development or that character. It's a core part of their story. But the rest of it, if they want to change it, they'll change it. And if they don't change, you know, if you don't change it, they'll sack you and bring someone in who will. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. That's the harsh reality.
1: Okay, so the screenplay isn't something that's set in stone then. I mean you could be halfway through filming a film and people can still be making changes to the script halfway through.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be you can be changing stuff as they're setting the camera up. You know, it's changing dialogue, you know, I like to leave one of the one of the first bit of advice I got when when I started screenwriting was always leave the actor with something to do. You know, that's the job. So let them do it. So if you give them, you know, if you give them a bit of free reign to, to actually develop their own dialogue and work, you know, do a bit of work with them so it's authentic. One of the interesting things we did on Top Dog was um, we, we employed a lot of lads, lads in inverted commas, proper, proper football lads that I knew, Leo knew, people we got off Facebook, you know, who I, I'd known for a while. And we got them to come to the set, and, and this, particularly in the big fight scene. They were all like football lads. And we said to them right the way through the shoot, if you see anything, anything at all, the tiniest detail, if you think it's wrong, tell us straight away. And we'll change it straight away. If we, if we agree with you, we'll change it straight away. Because once you've filmed it, it's too late. And we wanted to get everything right. The detail had to be right. And one of the people we had down was Andy Nichols, who wrote Scully. Fantastic! I mean, such a brilliant bloke, Andy. And uh, and he was he was there right throughout. And he was checking out stuff and saying, no, this wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen. You know, they wouldn't wear this. They wouldn't do that. You know, we were all doing it. We were all checking it all the way through, just so we could get it right. Because in a movie like this, you know, the devil's in the detail. Because you're writing about a culture which which a lot of people is a lot of people are quite close to it. It's very important to them, part of the DNA in some respects. And it, it, if you get it right, you're halfway there. Get it wrong, it'll ruin a movie. I mean, look at Green Street and Charlie Hunnam's accent. Still talk about yeah. it now.
3: <laughs> well, we could talk about that later, can't we? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, but, but it's uh, you've got to get it right, and and that's part of the script development, you know. It's all one and the same. Top Dog of the script was rewritten seventeen times. Sorry, did you say
3: rewritten seventeen times? Then I did. So for our audience, the uh, the premise of Top Dog. The novel is centred around Billy Evans and his friend Graham Hawkins, known as Hawk. They're best friends since school. Billy has a a successful business, but he also runs, and I've got to get this right now uh, because I've had too many acronyms over the last few days. It's the the AC in Top Dog. Is that correct, Dougie? I think so, yeah. The yeah, yeah, acting casuals,
2: acting casuals,
3: yeah, yeah. I see. So they are the um, uh, the West Ham United, yeah, West Ham United football hooligan firm who arranged to have fights with other firms. Billy and Graham come up with a really good idea to well. What happens, first of all, is Billy goes to a pub and realises that his family friends or Aunt Sal is being extorted by uh, somebody. But not only are they being extorted, several pubs and clubs or uh, three or four dozen pubs and clubs are being extorted by a guy called Mickey James. Billy makes a stand against Mickey James in the novel and comes to an arrangement with him, which we don't really know. we, We don't really find out until maybe midway, really what's going on. But Billy and Hawk, they start a security business uh, and eventually end up trying to win the business of the West Ham United uh, security contract. And I think that's really, for me, Dougie, where the book kind of picked up a little bit. Because I think you mentioned earlier on, Your books are kind of maybe aimed at working class blokes. So you've got your, you've got your fantasy fiction, you've got your horror fiction, you've kind of got your chick lit, but where is the bloke who works at a factory, goes to the football of a weekend? Where is the book for him? And I really identified with Hawk. I think it was like, I could see like kind of myself in him where, you know, he's, he's, he's got a, he's got a a wife and he's struggling to find a job and he's got a best friend who's doing well for himself. What he has got is. The football violence, not that I ever got involved in football violence, of course, but then he's given an opportunity to to start a business with his friend in the X and all he needed was that little opportunity and that's all he was focused on was, was making that business as good as it possibly could and I could identify with that and I followed the book and I don't know about you, Richie, but it was really easy for me to read because I could identify with the characters and what they were doing.
1: Yeah, it was really easy for me to read because I had somebody else reading it to me.
3: You know what I mean.
1: There's a lot of people out there who don't read books because they find them hard to follow, keep up with, or. You know, they've just never been book readers. But I would say to anyone, you could, you you can read this. Anybody could read this, and it's not that it's simple. It's just it's it speaks to the common person, but it's written in a way that's not self-indulgent. It's not um, pretentious. It's it's real. It feels real. It sounds real. You can relate to it.
2: That's all by design. I mean, I learned really quickly. I'm not not blowing my own trumpet. We worked out when we first did our when Eddie and I first did our non-fiction. Stuff because we were neither of us were writers, neither of us had ever written anything before. So we worked out, you know, how how are we going to do this? And one of the things we worked out was how to construct the narrative of the book. And we realized that as as just two working-class blokes, there's only three places we read. We read on a toilet, in bed. Or on the, on a the train on the way to work or a fourth on holiday or we read every that's when we read everything. So we re, we constructed the book in short chunks. so you can read one chunk you know or you can read 10 chunks or you can read every chunk in one go. but you can dip in and out of the book and pick up the story. you're not gonna you know you're not gonna be um, lost. The book carry will carry you along. And we carried that, I carried that through into fiction as well, which is why, why you know, and I, it means a lot to me that you say it's, it's really easy to read and really relatable because that's exactly what I wanted to do. That's exactly why I re- wrote it in the style it is. In terms of the characters, I based every single character on somebody I know. And I do that in a particular way. I, I do it, as soon as I want to develop a character, I, I find the name, get their name, uh, get their face So I work out in my head what they look like, um, what they walk like, everything about them. And then I get their voice. I put a voice to that character. And it can be anybody that as long as it fits the character in my head. So it can be um, my mate Pete or, you know, my mate Neil or Robbie Williams or anybody. And the reason I do that is because if I get stuck, if I don't know how they're working i'll just put on youtube or i'll ring them up and have a conversation and it'll clear my head and i know exactly what they're going to say or what they're going to do next it's really it's a really simple trick but it works, and, and uh, the the idea was always to keep them as real as possible. So you give a guy a job, you give him a struggle with his. I mean, by by the time we get to Top Dog, Billy and Hawkins are, are really out of the hooligan world anyway. They're, they're just these kind of high level figures, but they're about they're above the nuts and bolts of running around on train stations. They still get involved in stuff if it presents itself, but they're kind of they're they're excitement their buzz comes from the organization about watching what goes on being involved in that's that level of stuff not running it up and down streets they've been there done that this is the next phase and um and so yeah i just kind of got those characters as tight as i can but at the core of it they're just two working class blokes
1: You were saying earlier about how when you're on set and you've got the guys in, you've got the geezers from off Facebook and you're asking the questions like, you know, if if there's, there's, there's anything out of place, let us know because... Like you say, the uh, the detail is important. But reading the book or listening to the book, as I did, I found that there's a, the detail was also there in the book, which makes me wonder: Did you, did you come from that kind of a background where you was maybe involved in it? It's just like the the attention to detail is amazing. It's like only somebody who's been there and done it would probably know all this. Um, I don't. I mean, I was.
2: I've been going to football since the mid sixties. So I was, I was around that culture even, you know, when it was really bad in, you know, in the, in the seventies. And then as it, as I, you know, I was in the Air Force, so I was away a lot, but I was still managing to get to games. And as a, as, and I'm a Watford fan. So we were never the ICF or the Chelsea Air you know, but we were going to away, going to every game home and away. Where often, you know, certainly in 82, 83, when hooliganism was really at its, you know, on its way up to eighty five, when it really peaked. Everywhere you went, there was trouble, and everyone was looking. You know, when Watford went up into the first division, uh, we were fair game for everybody, so everybody was after us. You know, we were going to games with. You know grounds we'd never been to before, Anfield and you know White Hart Lane, Highbury, you know places like that. So you 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 learn about that culture because you're immersed in it. You know you know what it's like. You, you know you know what it's like. You know what people wear. You know how people act. You know how they speak. You know the, the the variables of you know Newcastle and Portsmouth. You know and and part of my job as the writer is to put guys like you into the middle of that. Because if I can make, you know, as you, as you said before, if I can make you, I mean, it's another thing about my novels. Okay. I don't do them flowery. I don't do flowery descriptive. I leave a lot open for you, the guys who are reading to do themselves. I leave you to paint the, the pictures of what the characters look like because subconsciously you'll portray, you'll paint it as someone you know or you've seen. So you're instantly relatable to those characters if they're not you. You know, so it, it, immediately, it, A, you're immersed in the book, but it also enhances the, the reading experience. You know, that's all kind of by design. And I think it, you know, from even listening to you two, it clearly works.
1: Yeah, I, I have to tip my hats off to you as well like with the film, because like I say, it's the book's relatable and it feels real. But you've done that with the film as well. And I think you find that a lot. a lot with British films. British films feel a lot more real than american hollywood films but in particular the the way you've translated this book into the film when you watch the film it doesn't feel like you're watching people acting like it does with hollywood sometimes or american films it feels really this this could be a guy actually going around the streets with a, a, ca- a camera on his chest or something it feels real that's what i love about british films but in particular this top dog it just smashed it out of the ballpark Oh, thank you very much. I mean,
2: it's, it's, you aspire to that sort of stuff, but it, it takes an awful lot of work. I mean, we had a phenomenal cast in it. I mean, Leo was brilliant. Ricky Harnett was amazing. You know, you've got someone like Vince Reagan, you know, who, who was bloody terrifying. And they just, to see them put your words onto screen is an astonishing thing. I mean, it's why I, you do, you know, why I do what I do, just to get for those moments where you see it. I don't, the thing about Top Dog is, You know, I don't think it it gets the credit it deserves, really. It's a a great movie. I think it's a great movie. Certainly my favourite of the movies I've ever done. But it just doesn't seem to get the recognition it deserves. I don't don't know why. No, people just don't seem to know about it. It's very strange.
3: Well, it's funny that you mention about Vincent Regan's menacing presence on screen, Dougie, because I think if anyone knows who Vincent Regan is, I think maybe it's his Scottish accent and his physical presence that, like when he speaks, especially in that kind of low, soft kind of yeah, Glaswegian yeah. accent, you're like, oh. But then I was like, oh, my on, He's doing an Irish accent. He's actually yeah. got some skill because it sounds Irish. And it's a Scottish man doing an Irish accent. And I was really impressed. And I was like, that's absolutely amazing.
2: I can't believe it. Quick story on that. There's a scene in the movie where he, he's talking to um, Ricky Harnett's character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. That's uh, in the club after the big fight. Yeah. Yeah. Where he, he's, he's, and Ricky Harnett, and it was really weird because you, you, as a writer, you kind of, you, in your head, you know how the movie's going to play out. You've seen the movie a thousand times. So when you see someone actually performing it for the camera and they don't do it how you imagine it. It can get really frustrating, but you can't say anything because they're putting their interpretation on on what you've written. In the case of that scene, where Rick, where Vincent is standing over Ricky Harnett and talking that really low Irish accent, and Ricky is visibly shrinking in fear. Yes. Uh-huh. That was exactly how I imagined it, and when they shot that scene, I walked outside and started crying. Oh. It was unbelievable. And Vincent Reagan came out and said, "Are you all right?" And I said, "And I just told him basically what I said to you." And he said, "Script's brilliant." I said, "You make it you make it really easy." And I'm like, "Wow, that's you know, it was a, yeah, it was amazing. It was an amazing moment."
1: Absolutely that was man. something I picked up on, actually, um, the accent. It's like you stated in the book, the Irish guy, he didn't have a southern accent like he was expecting. It was more of a soft northern tone. And, it, and um, when I watched the film, it was exactly that. It was perfect to how I pictured it in the book.
2: Yeah, that's that's great. That's really nice to hear. He, it, it was phenomenal to watch the guy work, to watch him all work, really. But he he is a master Master of his art. He was exactly what we needed him
3: you know he's bloody terrifying oh oh, he's terrifying in everything he does um now you mentioned this earlier on Dougie and you kind of keep getting all of my questions before I get to ask you the questions <laughs> the question was when you're writing the characters do you have someone in mind which you've already discussed but when you were writing Top Dog uh, as an example are you thinking if this gets turned into the film I want such and such to play this person or or does or does that not cross your mind at the time
2: um yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question. You, you, the answer is no. You don't. Um, you don't play the the um, the mythical casting game until afterwards. I know you know you. As I said before, you know in your head what you want, uh, and you hope that the producers are going to go out and find it. The interesting thing about adapting your own book, because with Top Top Dog was a, a sequel to The Crew, and in The Crew I had, you know, I'd that character was firmly fixed in my mind and then all of a sudden the guy i've got in my mind who looks a bit like um a cross between peter Kay and robbie williams i suppose
3: and is this for billy
2: evans sorry or billy evans all of a sudden that character is leo gregory and it's a mass it was it was a massive shift in my mindset to have to adapt that because I've, i'm writing a book based on a character i'm really familiar with because i've lived with him for two novels and all of a sudden he looks and sounds and acts completely different and that was a real shift and I had you know because of what I knew it was going to be Leo from the outset it took me quite a while to get to get a handle on that the problem is when you go out with Leo when you go out for a drink with him or go anywhere with him all you get is people come up to him and say you're bother <laughs> and it's, even now, it's it's the most bizarre bizarre thing. And um, uh, but I mean, he, lo- he loves it. Fair play to me. Well, of course, but, he um, does. it's it's uh, yeah. That was a real shift. That, that was that was a real really difficult shift for me. It's like having another actor play James Bond, I suppose. Well, you know? yeah.
3: I mean, uh, we well, see because when I was reading the book, because I've seen Top Dog before, but many many years ago. But when I was reading the book, I had in my head uh, for me particularly someone like frank harper like that kind of character you know um, yeah, yeah. you know like you know big stocky mean looking chap who could command respect from people without having to do anything so to speak you know who wasn't afraid who wasn't scared of having a fight or being in a fight kind of thing and then when i watched the movie again because i watched it three or four days ago and i saw leo craig I was like that's not what i imagined however it's
2: Bova. So <laughs> so clearly it works. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, it is a difficult one because, I mean, Bob has, has become such an iconic character, but uh, he pulls it off, you know, he, he does it. He, he's, uh, he's great. But, um, yeah, I know what you mean. It was a difficult one. I mean, I never had him down as a Frank Harper in terms of physical size, slightly smaller. I can, I can describe him now, you know, it's just, it's just mad. I can still see him in my head and hear him. It's, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Absolutely
3: crazy, and so for you. And obviously, uh, you've already mentioned that you're a, a Watford fan. So, how, why was it West Ham that you've kind of focused on more in the novel Top Dog and the movie Green Street, rather rather than a Watford as an example?
2: Of oh course, would you read a Hooligan novel about a Watford fan?
3: Oh, well, yeah, but yeah, but but for me, being in the Midlands, it makes no difference to me. If you see what I mean,
2: yeah, no, I I I get it. Uh, I mean, it's right. The 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 thing was, Green Street was not supposed to be about West Ham and Millwall. It was supposed to be about Arsenal and Tottenham. Uh, That that makes more
3: sense to 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 British people. That would make more sense. Yeah, a bit like Villa and Blues. It was
2: changed because one of the American producers had heard about Millwall was this big Hooligan firm, and um, and so they they insisted on the change. Okay. And it was real fine, um you know i'd ri- uh, I'd written the crew anyway um by then, and in the crew, they were West Ham fans because I know a lot of West Ham lads um I, I know you know my wife's from Essex, so I had a familiarity with that area and the type of people um and I had people I could call on for background, you know, for back, for background information on the surrounding areas and stuff like that. And I'd go I'd have a, go and have a wander around Upton Park and places. I must congratulate you, though,
3: Dougie, uh, because I think within the first three or four minutes of the movie, Top Dog we're talking about now, you mentioned the villa. So I have to say thank you very much for that. Oh, did I? <laughs> yeah, I think um, there was in the pub and they were talking about maybe the scrap they'd had uh, the previous week. And they went, yeah, then bloody villa. And I was like, yes, he's mentioned the villa. (laughs) (laughs) He's mentioned the villa. (laughs) Because it's usually, well, well, um, quote unquote, the Zulus, which, for our listeners, is Birmingham City. Uh, it's always them. So Villa got a mention. I was like, yes, Villa's got a mention, not just the blues.
2: Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I you know, I used to like going to Villa. And I also used to race stock cars in Birmingham. So I used to pass... Oh, really?
3: down, um, was, oh uh, was that down at uh, Adderley Park?
2: Up at the wheels. <laughs> Birmingham wheels. So possibly, they're almost every, at least two or three times a month.
3: So author, screenwriter, stock car racer. Well, oh, yeah. um, uh, RAF sergeant as well. Let's let, oh, yeah. let, let's get that CV correct, shall we? Let's get the CV correct. So, there's a lot of differences in the film. Where did uh, well, when we spoke to uh, when we spoke to your brother Eddie, he'd mentioned that he'd had uh, he or he'd had a conversation with Lionsgate about making a film, and he'd produced a script, and they were asking things like, "Can you put a love interest in? Can you do this? Can you do that?" And Eddie was a bit dumbfounded. He's like, "No, I don't really want to." put love interest into this script because it isn't where it is but in the in the movie you've i'd put a note here girly chats at the nail bar was that something that the studio had asked for is that something that you tr- put in there uh different to the movie just to kind of add a different element to the script
2: perhaps no i wanted to um a, I wanted to give depth, a bit of depth to the character and the story. And I wanted to show another side to him as well. You know, the fact that they have a life, football, football isn't their life. You know, it's just their hobby. But it's also because, and, and I learned this really, really early on in my writing career. Hooliganism as a, as a story is really boring. You know, bloke goes to, from A to B as a fight and comes back to A. It's really boring after a while. So you've got to actually give, you know, if you read Top Dog and The Crew to a lesser extent, and certainly in the know, hooliganism is there, but it's a fuel that drives the engine of the story. And one of the reasons why a lot of these, you know, a lot of, with respect to, to other authors, I don't mean to decry anyone, but other books about football hooliganism, one of the reasons they, they don't last in, long, in terms of longevity is because there is no story. You know, the story is pretty one-dimensional. So you've got to give depth to it you've got to add characters in you need emails in in a story because you've got to keep it interesting you've got to keep it relatable you know it's uh, football hooliganism is by its very nature it's kind of schizophrenic lifestyle because it's only one day a week so you got six other days to fill. <laughs> you know, you're not like the Bad Blue Boys in, you know, wherever, you know, or the Italian Ultra, where it's 24-7. We don't do that here. You know, it's something you do on a match day, and then you go back to normality. And so you need the normality, you know. For Billy, normality is walking the line between right and wrong. That's what he does. And he's got a wife, and he's got kids. And, you know, Graham Hawkins has got a wife who hates Billy with a vengeance, and uh, they can't have kids so, which is a source of much upset to him, you know, and they're, they're, they're just real characters, you know, and as you said before, you've, you've got to make the characters relatable because otherwise they're instantly forgettable.
1: I completely get that. I mean, you are adding dimensions to the characters, because at the end of the day, like you say, you want us to be able to relate to the characters, and if, you know, if you've just got a one-dimensional character with no personality, no background, nothing, how am I going to relate to that character? It's just, there might as well be just like an extra in the story. Um, we've talked about like the differences between uh, the book and uh, the film well, I and mean, We haven't really talked about the differences But to anybody who's watched the film out there listening to this I would urge anyone to read the book If you love the film, definitely read the book Don't think that uh, there's no point reading the book Because it's the same thing It's a completely different beast It's the same story but from a completely different angle It's the same but completely different And I mean completely different But it's still just as good would you say that the differences between the book and the film were put in there because of, you know, with the book, you, you, you're you not constrained by time. Whereas with a film, you've got an hour and a half. Yeah, the, the film came from the
2: book. So, um, you know, I, I, when I wrote the book, I, I never thought we would do the movie. I mean, we, years and years ago, we almost um, filmed the crew. We got very, very close. And... Um, uh, but I never thought we would ever film Top Dogs. So it was, it was a case of it. This is a standalone story. I need it to be not complex. I need it to be very relatable, but really interesting. And it needs to be, you know, as I said before, I don't do flowery stuff. So the story is bang, 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 all the way through. Well, if you're going to do that, you've got to have a strong story. And in the case of the book, you've got three strong stories, which all come together right at the end. And, you know, that was kind of the same in The Crew. It's certainly the same in In the Know, which takes Billy into a whole different world. So, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, it's, it's for, me, for you to say, you know, the, the book's much better than the film, is kind of uh, both flattering and music to my ears because I think the <laughs> I think the book is, is pretty phenomenal.
3: Yeah. yeah, so I mean obviously one of the one of the biggest differences between the book and the movie is that in the book again, Hawk, and we're gonna talk about Graham Hawkins, he's got a uh, he's got a wife and as you said hates Billy probably thinks that Billy's leading Graham astray and isn't doing Graham any favours in the book Graham's struggling to find work Billy gives him the opportunity but in the movie Billy and his wife is it Julie in the book stroke movie I can't remember if they've got the same name in the uh, in the film um, but she's pregnant she's having a baby uh, and uh, spoiler alert with all this issues with with Mickey uh, Billy and Mickey have a face off Billy tells Mickey, you're not taking money out of this pub anymore. This is in the film. You're not taking this pub, uh, money out of this pub anymore. It's my man. It's my pub. You stay away. Now, Mickey is very, very brave in front of about Ten or twelve really, really hard blokes, and just says, "Well, we've got a problem then now Billy expects the problem to come to him, but in the movie he smashes at the pub, he sends flowers to uh to uh Hawke's house, saying, See you soon and there's a scene where Billy's wife's giving birth in the bath. She phones Billy at the pub, and as Billy's running home, he gets attacked by Mickey James's thugs. And he's killed. And I was wondering what your thought process was uh, there, Dougie, considering that he doesn't die in the book or have any of that issue in the book.
2: It was purely because of that that whole storyline. Because in in the book, Billy is desperate for for hawk's uh wife's approval mm-hmm. yes um, because it's his best mate and he can't go around there because his woman hates his guts and um and it, but in the movie we did that was one of the threads that we had to change and so to make that the story flow we had to have something which kind of freaks flips billy over a little bit and uh and that was it that was what we came up with we had to just make that adaptation and it's yeah it's different from the book but it works in the movie Obviously, in the book as well, I think in
3: what we can probably call the third act, Billy is approached by somebody at a West Ham function who has got a problem with his own football team, which I think was Latin Orient, if I'm correct there, Dougie. Yeah. And basically, Latin Orient are struggling for money. Uh, They've got this young Irish footballer. And basically, if this lad gets injured so he can never play again the club will get a couple of million quid out uh, of the compensation in uh from the insurers and actually be okay and not have a problem financially and be back on the on the track and this chap Simpson approaches Billy about it so Billy thinks well I'll do it myself for 100 grand no problem and goes out and crushes the lad uh, in between two cars, and that's where the Irish connection kicks in in the book, and the Irish lads come in basically for revenge. Um, in the movie, it's it's not really like, with like the Irish people are connected with Mickey James in the movie, and but yeah. it's not really explained why. I don't think. I mean, unless I miss something, it's the it's kind of like we put a lot of money into you. What are you missing about? For and then obviously you get the vengeance. You, you kind of get the confrontation at the end, but it wasn't really explained. I don't think what was like, like the backstory to them. Like was was there any particular reason for that? I was it thought kind it of...
1: was self-explanatory. Okay. He was obviously the main guy in some sort of Irish mob, like the consigliere or something, and Mickey just got involved with them somehow. That's where it came across to me. He wasn't anything more than just the main boss of the firm or the uh, the Irish mob. It was just as simple as that in the film. But like I say in the book, it was completely different. Um, Mickey and... Billy were a good mate and it was uh, in the film it was Mickey that got crushed and in the book it was the young lad that got crushed which made, which painted for me a different picture of Billy in the book to the film because I knew that Billy had it in him to be a nasty person with the football hooliganism and everything, but the way he got off on crushing a seventeen year old and he got off on it and he had to go on holiday to sort his head out because he was just getting such a high off it made him come across like a, a real a real evil bastard that had karma coming his way. Whereas in the film you didn't feel that way towards him
2: I mean you're always going to get more in a book you know that's yeah, that's yeah. the you, you because you've got more room to develop a story and you're you're sitting there you know if you're watching a movie you haven't as a as a viewer you haven't got the luxury that you have as a reader of of like developing the story in your own head developing that character and the background to it so it's um you know I I'd, I'd, you know it I'd always say, if there's a book, read the book, you know, because you're going to get more out of it.
3: Well, we always come to the conclusion that we most of the time prefer the book over the movie, don't we, Richard? And I think that's the main reason why is because you've got your own interpretation of the character. You've got 300 pages to get used to a character or characters yeah. so to speak, and then when you watch it produced on the screen, you're like, well, that didn't happen. And what? And, and I think that's that's the main reason why we do this podcast, Dougie, okay, is to have that conversation, well, just with me and Richie, really. And I've got to say, actually, you are pretty much the apex of – Of what we're trying to do with the podcast, where we've got the author of the book and the screenwriter and the writer of the film on the podcast. And we're having that conversation about why you've done things the way you've done things. And I don't think we really ever need to do the podcast again, do we? No,
1: we've peaked after this episode. We don't need to
3: do another one. We've fluffed it. We've completely fluffed it. (laughs) (laughs) We've peaked. Unless we can get Stephen King on. Right, then that is literally we've completely peaked when yeah, it comes yeah. to having that conversation because normally we have a conversation. Stephen about,
1: King can fuck <clears throat> off my 80s work.
3: And listen, just because just because the Tommyknockers never came out, Richie, and we had to read <laughs> 900 pages of nonsense. <laughs> 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 completely put me off in for the rest of my 900 pages. Of absolute bullshit. And we didn't even do the podcast. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> um, okay. So I mean, right, okay, so we could talk right we could talk about the film all day long, but we've discussed some of the differences, we've discussed some of the reasons why things were changed and why they weren't changed. So I think we should move on really to the recast segment. Uh Richie, is there any actors that you would recast in this movie?
1: Um, no, I don't I honestly don't think I would. They all played. Okay. A, a, they all played a brilliant part. We we're talking about Green Street. That's a completely different thing. But uh, this, this for Top Dog. Now I think I think everyone played the the part perfectly.
3: Okay, quick question for you as the as the writer of of the book and the movie. Did you get any kind of input on on the casting? No. Okay, and so I didn't, that's... Want any. I didn't want. I
2: didn't want any. Okay, um, that's interesting. The re- the reason being is. Um, I know who I I don't want where, uh, how do I put too fine a point on this? There are people I would never work with in a million years. Um, and I don't, you know, and I don't mean, you know, the Brad Pitt's of this world. I mean, the, the, the job in actors of this world, um, because uh, um, um, in the kind of genre that you're doing top dog in, you need, you, you need to have that. If you're going to be an actor in, in the lead it in a leading role you need to have that background you need you can't fake it so you you're right in you know I, I said earlier this isn't a movie about hooliganism but it is kind of a movie about f- football so you've got to know football if you don't know football you're not going to be in this movie end of story so those are one of the questions we'd have earlier do you go to football what who do you support blah blah, blah. because you've got to understand this the culture surrounding football you know the match day culture the pub culture all those things because you can't you can't teach them to people you can't fake them really so i, I and I, i'm not I, I did a I did my first movie was a short movie called it's a casual life which
3: sorry doggy just to interrupt you there which is a fantastic film Thank you. um and i think i think for the for the 15 minutes that it is you get the complete insight into what that football life is all about, and you get the narrator who kind of explains everything in the camaraderie in the pub, and I think the fight itself, or, or the big, or like the ending, uh, that that fight between the, uh, I think it is the Birmingham side and the London side. I don't know if I can't remember if it was actually. A nominated football team, but was, was very, very realistic for a start. And secondly, very brutal. And you kind of felt sorry for a lot of the people, especially the guy who got slashed at the end. But one of the things that uh, I think kind of threads between these football films, whether it be The Firm with Gary Oldman, whether it be ID, whether it be Green Street or Top Dog, it's professional people. It's people with like, like executives, dentists, doctors. Uh, publicists or in Green Street f- airline pilots, and that's what they do for their job. And to relax, they like to go and have a massive fight of a weekend. It's, uh, it's, it's not just mindless thugs who work in warehouses, is, is what I'm trying to get at. It's people from all walks of life who
2: that's their release. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, and it's one of the things I wanted to do in Top Dog, which we didn't, which wasn't done in Green Street, was because you, you know you, you, you alluded to it before. You've got a character like Billy, who's kind of been a really successful, runs his own business and all this stuff, and his best mate and his right hand man is, is Graham Hawkins, who's unemployed and can't get a job. Yet on match days, they're, they're equal of each other and they're treated completely equally. And it's one of the reasons people go to football is to forget all that crap. When you go to football, you're just a football fan. You know, it's one of the issues I have with a modern game, which has tried to politicise itself and, you know, drape itself in all these various causes, which is contrary to why I ever go to football, why I ever went to football. I don't want that. I don't want to see political stuff at football, because it's not why I go. Because all you're going to get is division, This is what we've, we've, you know, certainly seen at Watford over the last few years.
3: Less than about Watford,
2: the better, eh, doggy. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't give me five. So, um, it, it was important that I, certainly again in Top Dog, that I put across the fact that these are just, uh, this is their lifestyle for one day a week. It's what they do. It's, you know, the, even going back to Green Street. Green Street was always, the, the initial pitch for Green Street was, was to make a British Fight Club. That's what we wanted to do. And that comes across actually very All well. All of the producers on Green Street were women, and they just didn't get it. They wanted to, they wanted to do it as a, a buddy movie, which is what they kind of pitched it as in America. So you had almost like an affair between Charlie's character and Elijah's character, and um, when it could have been so much more and so much better.
3: but we will but we will talk about that in part two of this podcast but just very quickly Dougie so just from what we said about the recast is there anybody that you would fantasy recast in Top Dog no okay cool well I've got a couple um and I think I'd already mentioned Frank Harper instead of Leo Gregory and I think that's only because what I was imagining when I was reading the book kind of that big burly no-nonsense kind of chap. Uh, but I'd also had um, uh, Tama Hassan in that role as well. And I think, obviously, he'd probably... Uh, was it was it The Football Factory? Because, actually, that's a very good question, um, uh, Dougie, because Football Factory come out in 2004 and Green Street come out in 2005. But had you started uh, writing the script pre-production by the time that The Football oh, Factory no, had come out? Oh,
2: no, yeah. yeah. We were about two years into it.
3: Yeah. Was there a big fucking howl when you saw that come out? Or was uh, No, a- because
2: I, 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 I knew it was going to come. I mean, it, it was obviously going to come at some point because it was uh, well, this is very contentious. Mm-hmm. I don't like the book. Uh, there's just something about the football factory I don't like. I, I can't put my finger on what it is, but it's just like, it's kind of meh, meh. Uh, I've never seen the film um no intention of ever watching it i don't mean that as any disrespect to anybody it's just like um i mean i've only seen green street twice you know well, it's um, your own
3: work though isn't it i think it's a bit different when you watch your own work back it's yeah we don't listen mobile. to this
1: podcast back bollocks <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> that's,
3: that's why it's still shit because <laughs> we don't learn from our mistakes
2: yeah I mean it's uh it's, it's a really weird thing to say i mean in terms of recasting i i i think i think that's disrespectful to the people we've got in are no, of there course. People, are there people I would have liked to have seen in it um probably not you know i think in terms of who we had on on top dog everyone here you know everybody hit the mark even you know susan penhaligon who played sally at the bar, at yeah. the bar was just amazing you know
3: oh, no 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 No, she was fantastic and it's and it is very rare that we have anyone for a recast Doggy, okay? it's like like we do and it's genuine we we do kind of struggle think who who would be better and i think when we did uh our last episode which was, well, not our last episode, which was uh, First Blood, but when we did Die Hard, it was like, who would be better than Bruce Willis? Well, exactly. And it was like, and it was like, nobody. Well, maybe, maybe Kurt Russell at the very, you know, like if we were really stretching, but like, you know, Bruce Willis was perfect in Die Hard and I couldn't, and the whole cast was perfect, also available in our archives. But um, I had, I had Frank Harper down in my head when I was reading the book and that, I think that's the kind of person I was imagining. But I, but uh, with uh, Ricky Harnett, again, when I'm reading the book, I kind of had um, a Neil Maskell or a Jeff Bell in my head. You know, someone who could come across as completely vicious and violent and horrible I, 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 and I get, hateful. I
2: get, I get what you're saying about Jeff. I mean, he's yeah. brilliant.
3: Yeah, because it, it feels like he's just going to hurt you and bite your face off and you hate him and there's nothing you can do because he's so scary.
2: yeah. I, I think, but I think Ricky's got that. I think, I don't know, I think Ricky's got that. Really, well, Ricky's really. a very,
3: very good, he's a very, very good actor. I, I loved him, I loved him in uh, Rise of the Foot Soldier 2 and I thought he was very, very good in Psychosis as well, which is a great British film and I think anyone who likes horror films, who likes thrillers, uh, should go and watch that film because it's absolutely brilliant and it also has Charisma Carpenter in it and so if anyone loves Charisma Carpenter or Attractive Women in general, He's go such a fucking Char- geek. Oh, fuck you, man. There's nothing wrong with liking British films, Richie. <laughs> um, yeah,
2: I mean, I, I'd work with Ricky in a heartbeat and, and Jeff and Leo. I wouldn't hesitate. Um, I just think they're, they're, they're quality, they're, they're underused. That's, that's the real tragedy. You know, for me, yeah. Randy well, I used- think, I think,
3: I think, I think probably pigeonholed really is 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 the issue you've got there, really, isn't it? Especially yeah. within the British drone. But we'll have this conversation. Actually, the, the, this is one of the conversations that I want to have with you in our next episode uh, regarding Green Street and especially the actors that you've used. But uh, as far as the recast, so soundtrack. Now uh, you'd mentioned this earlier on, Dougie. Did you use any Spandau Ballet music?
2: in, uh, no, in, the, in <laughs> the soundtrack is one of the bones of contention I have of the movie did you have Kasabian was it Kasabian
3: you had or was that for Green Street or no, that was for Top Dog wasn't it
2: I think it was Kasabian in Top Dog yeah I mean uh, um, yeah I, I I don't know enough about the music side of what went on to uh, to comment really but I you know again it's do you, do you put music what kind of music do you put in a in a movie about football violence and about you know that kind of stuff, it's
3: uh, we have Casabian. I think I think that's the kind of that was the time that was the that was the kind of the vibe. I mean, normally I just I normally reach to the Prodigy and go put smack my bitch up in there.
1: When there's fight scenes, yeah, stick some drum and bass in like a Prodigy or something like yeah. that. But I think mainly I reckon ninety eight percent of the film wouldn't need any soundtrack at all. Anything? I don't think it need anything. Maybe just like just 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 the, just the action scenes. But other than that, I don't think it needs anything.
3: No, it's very, no, it's it's perfect the way it is. If you're adding little bits in there, I mean, I can think of that one Kasabian song that that kind of works very well. But then it, that's just a song. It's not an album or a soundtrack, uh, so to speak. Uh, so we're moving swiftly on now. We say
2: which yeah, is better. But uh, again. It's nice. say again, sorry, Dougie. All This high praise I'm getting, it's very nice. <laughs> That's
3: because you're here, Dougie.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you should do what we say about you behind your back.
3: <laughs> you wouldn't be the first. <laughs> uh, so, so Richie, okay, so this is for Richie note. So, Richie, um, what is your star rating out of 10 for the book?
1: Oh, 10.5. Fucking <laughs> Now, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, if I'm being absolutely honest, I, I was I was enthralled with the book. Like I say, and it's not just because you are, because we are absolutely honest. It did it, it, this book. I was engrossed. It felt real, and for when something feels real, it, I, I enjoy it more. And I'd easily give this a uh, nine nine point five. The book. And if you're asking me which was my favourite out of the two, the movie and the the book, I would I'd give the movie an eight, eight point five. So my favourite is the, my favorites the book. I would say.
3: Okay, cool. Well, I would give I would give the book an eight. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was very very easy to read. Uh, I enjoyed the characters. I felt the pressure on Billy throughout the whole film. Even though maybe I, I couldn't maybe relate to Billy as much as I related to Hawks, as an example. Um, yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I I still felt the pressure on Billy all the way through the film. And I think it's maybe what you said earlier on, Dougie, where is Billy was desperate for, for Hawks' wife's approval. And I think a lot of what he did, and looking back now, looking back, a lot of what he did was for Julie's approval. He just wanted her to go, it's okay to be with Billy. Um, I think
1: we fucked up here, Phil. I, th- I have think we- what we, I th- yeah, I think we fucked up. I think what we've done is that our professional etiquette's gone clean out the fucking window I don't think <laughs> well, it we're has. supposed to do this in front of the author <laughs> no we're not no we're not but this never happened before so you know this is a different <laughs> episode altogether um, uh, for the
3: movie I'd give the movie uh, I'd probably give the movie a 7 it's it's a little bit difficult when you like the book so much and then you watch it and you're like, it's not exactly like the book, but it was still enjoyable to watch. And uh there was still that tension. I, I felt there was still that tension there throughout uh throughout the movie as well. And then the bit where the one bit that got me or oh, the takeaway for me was when uh Billy said Hawk's not here for the meetup because he's waiting for the baby and when they moved to the pub I was like, Oh fucking Hawk's gonna die in eh? a Bastard's gonna fucking kill him, <laughs> and it was just like no. But oh, uh, we did miss takeaways, and I've got to say there was two parts in the film that I really liked, and one that I want to ask you about, Dougie. The first one was the fight in the Chinese takeaway, which yeah. I absolutely loved, and I think in the book it was a little bit different because Billy had gone outside and waited for the guy, and that's where I kind of got that. That's where I got. Uh, was it? Sorry, is, it, is it, it? It's not Frank Miller, is it? Uh, what's the? Uh, 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 when I was talking about who. Was was going to play him i've kind of got that kind of idea there but in 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 the movie when he just like he'd had enough and he just stood up and the, and, and the little kid's gone what are you going to do about it and it was bang bang and he just threw him through the window i was like that's fucking fantastic that is cinematic that's what you need to see isn't it rather than just waiting outside and then we went yeah love there's some money. Close tomorrow. Fix your window. And then didn't walk through the door. Walk Didn't walk through the smash window. Just open the door and walked out. And I thought that was brilliant. But the one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Dougie, was the car crushing scene. Because I'd seen something like that in Strike Back before when they were doing uh, the behind the scenes. And there's a chap in like a little cage. But he's still getting hit by the car. But obviously, like, because of the camera angles, it looks like he's really been hurt. Um, how was that f- uh, scene filmed with uh, Ricky Hartley being crushed by the cars?
2: Um, it took all day. we faffing about and rehearsing. Uh, and in the end, we had to rush it because we were losing light. It was... Uh, I can't remember how they did it. It was a long time ago now. Um but uh, the the actual crash was done really quickly. That was done at the end. And the bit where he squashed was done really slowly, you know, a, a, a bit before that, obviously, because you've only got one Ricky.
3: Well, I was going to say, so that was him actually doing it rather than like a stuntman, like, you no
2: know, standing. Now, as it. I recall, that was him doing it. But as I say, it long okay.
3: <laughs> I can imagine that conversation. Right, Phil. So uh, you asked for you and Richie to be in this scene. So what's going to happen is this tank's going to run over you, but don't worry. Yeah. Right. It, I don't think it's
2: going <laughs> to hurt you. to let's do it properly. No, I mean, they were proper, <laughs> I mean, we had a proper stunt team doing it. Of course exa- you did. They no, no, yeah, knew exactly what they were doing. And it was rehearsed over and over and over and over again. So, um, but it was essential to the movie. You know, it was it was just as it is in the book. Now it's it's very very different in the book because it's very dramatic.
3: Well, those were my takeaways. Richie, have you got any takeaways from the movie?
1: From the movie? Um Yeah, my main takeaway is Jason Fleming He's in every single gangster film from Britain ever, <laughs> uh, 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 all of them. When, whenever anybody says, I'm, I'm going to do a British gangster film or something to do with football violence, Jason Fleming must put his hand up a guard of that.
2: He was down to Leo.
3: Oh, Oh,
2: okay. The friends are, though. Yeah, Leo got him in for the day. And when, you know, you're doing a relatively low-budget movie and Jason Fleming says, oh, I'll be in it. He's in it. Of course he did. (laughs) That's why he's in everything. And so uh, I wanted to film, I love scrapyards, so I wanted to film in a scrapyard, so it was a no-brainer.
3: Oh, being, of course, being a stock car racer, yeah, it, exactly. makes, it, it makes more sense now. I'm like, yeah, because it was saying, get it back to me. I want to do some stock car racing. I'll have this on the track within three days. And then that was the, obviously in the book and the movie, it was that kind of married really well. It's like, well, of course we have connections everywhere, don't we?
2: And it was yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. fucking hell. He that's right. See, it. in the book, there's a mention of the stock car yard.
3: Yeah, no, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, because he said, I think he said, uh, I'll have it painted yellow and have it on the track uh, yeah. by Tuesday. Yeah. Mm. See? Yeah.
2: So what, I knew I wanted to write something about bang racing in
1: Essex. <laughs> so he didn't <never laughs> win. I particularly enjoyed uh, in the book the bit where the kid gets crushed and he's, he's stuck and he can't get his earphones out and he says, and it was at that point he really couldn't give a fuck who the real Slim and shy he was. <laughs> that was very good. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I, in my head, I, I had that scene in my head. I'd had it in, you know, the, 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 the idea of someone falling forward and bending the wrong way just fascinated me.
1: Hmm. That says a lot about you, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, I spend my
2: days finding new ways to hurt people.
1: <laughs> well, if, whilst
2: you what's your lord in Top Dog? If I could yes. r- recommend that you read In the Know. Oh, well, which of is course. A because in the know is even better than Top Dog.
3: Considering we know how the book ends, uh, I'm very interested to read that as well. And uh, yeah, and uh, if you're interested in uh, writing that into a script, Dougie, we'll have you back and we'll it's have a conversation. All you
2: should say that? Oh,
3: really? <laughs> really? Well,
2: I'm not saying anything else.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned for further episodes of Dougie yes. Brimson. Oh no, that's it's podcast. Okay, well, I think I think we've reached the end of uh, our episode. Top Dog versus Top Dog. Uh, Dougie, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, do listen out for our uh, bonus episode on Green Street, which Dougie will be joining us to discuss all things Green Street. Richie?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening, whoever's listening. Please do us a favour, like and subscribe and all that bullshit. Apparently it helps. So, yeah, please do that. Go find Dougie, all of his work. Dougie, where can people find you? Uh, Dougiebrimson.com. Uh,
2: I'm on Twitter and Facebook as Dougie Brimson as only me no trained monkeys if you come on Twitter um, behave yourself um, I will not I uh, don't get involved in much on Twitter these days for various and pretty obvious reasons it's a bit of a cesspit now yeah we
1: only use it for promotion
2: yeah, but generally if it's if if it says it's me, it's me. So Excellent. If it's if it's someone impersonating me, then more for them.
1: excellent. Yes. So thank you again, Doug. It's been an absolute pleasure and we look forward to speaking to you again sometime. Uh go check out Doug in all of the places that we'll leave in the show notes go check us out go do all those things if you've enjoyed the show the episode or any previous episodes please leave a comment let us know what you thought let let us know what you think about the films and the books if you've read them or watched them it'd be good to hear from you in our next episode we will be doing the book eight o'clock in the morning versus the film they live so if you have anything to say about those feel free to leave a comment on facebook or instagram or twitter and uh, we'll be sure to give you a shout out in the episode so yeah until next time this has been the adapted to screen podcast top dog the film versus top dog the book thank you for listening if indeed you still are
0: I've had an idea for a new business. It ain't strictly football, but it does concern the AC in this place. Someone's putting the squeeze on it. And the first thing we got to do is sort out this little firm draining until. till. Awesome faces here next Thursday. Lots of them. Hello, Mickey. Long time no see. Billy Evans. This place. It's now.
3: you got that phantom kind of love I need. I lose my mind. I
0: can't warm up! Boy no You wanna fucking down the wall with me? I will fucking down the with you any fucking time of you want! You know me! You know me!
3: What's going on, Mickey? Nothing, Patty. right? This doesn't look like nothing to
2: me. You tell Billy Evans. I'll be seeing him. Need a driver?
1: Two yards for one of us! The way to rise! Ah! Come on! You bastard!
0: This is all a bit lock stock, isn't it? There's no one told you all that football bollocks died out years ago. It's a fucking joke now, fella. We ain't laughing.